Good morning. My name is Lauren, and I'm going to be reading Joshua 7.1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Also, happy Juneteenth. Um, It's not a day where our celebrations are divided. We get to celebrate two things at once. Because it's a good thing to celebrate Father's Day and ultimately to remember our Heavenly Father, but it's also a good thing to celebrate Juneteenth and remember the image of God for all peoples being celebrated and held as a priority. We celebrate Juneteenth as we remember and celebrate the abolition of slavery in America. And so we will celebrate that. We will wish one another happy Juneteenth and happy Father's Day. So um, I hope you guys got to drink some coffee and eat some donuts and biscuits. Um, I asked my son earlier, uh, my middle son, what he wanted. And as we stood there looking at the table, he was staring at the donuts, whispering, and as we were waiting, I was trying to get him to get other things on his plate. He saw other like donuts getting taken from the box. The green one got taken, then the pink one got taken, and just terror in his face. And so we rushed over and got him a chocolate donut, and he was satisfied. But um, all that to say, happy Father's Day. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. You got to meet Brian earlier. Now, I want to explain real quick. We're moving pretty quickly through Joshua. We're going about a chapter a week, but because we're moving so quickly and it's not quite on the same pace, I wanted to show you what the next few weeks will look like. And I wanted to show you this because um, I'm going to ask that you would read along with us. So if you're taking notes, write this down, take a picture so you can remember. And the purpose of this is so that we can read together as we're going through uh, preaching in Joshua because... um, It'll help us to meditate on the text, and that's important, and I'll get to that in just a second, but also, I cannot cover everything in Joshua. Joshua is so rich with um, calling back into the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but it's also so rich looking ahead to Jesus, looking ahead to uh, the gospel, and so we can only cover one thing at a time, but as you read And as you meditate on the scripture, just let the Holy Spirit show you more and more and more as we go through it, because it builds on itself, it looks back, and it points ahead. Um, And so we do this because scripture is meditation literature. It was given to us, and it was instructed to us by God to meditate on it. We don't move too quickly through it. It's good to to plow through um, huge chunks of scripture and read those quickly so that we know the overall story of each book and and the entirety of scripture, but it's also good for us, instructed to us by God to move slowly through the book, move slowly through scripture and meditate on it because we learn in in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture, now this was a scripture that was written before the New Testament was canonized as the New Testament, so all they had was the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is God-breathed. It was created by God. It was given to us by God. And he gave it to us to instruct us and correct us, to inform us. 
and lead us on our way as we trust and follow him. And then Hebrews 4 tells us that all scripture pierces through the surface into our souls. It's not just behavior modification. Scripture doesn't teach us how to act better. It pierces through our flesh into our hearts, into our souls to change what we desire, to change what we believe. And this is important because we see in Joshua 1, God tells Joshua, for this reason, because of the role of Scripture, he tells Joshua, depend on my instructions. Meditate on my instructions. If you do not swerve to the left or to the right, but you meditate on my instructions and you keep following them, you will have success. And so this is why we preach the way we preach. Um, But it's also an important setup for today's message. We need God's scripture to pierce into our souls because there's something deeply broken about us. When we talk about sin, we're talking about, um, we looked in in chapter six last week, we're looking in chapter seven this week, that the the primary topic of discussion right now is sin. And I'll define sin in just a second. Last week, we looked at the sin of the world, living in rejection of God. This week, we're looking at the sin of God's people, that even though we are chosen by God, set apart for good works, we still have a disposition deep within us to distrust him, to disbelieve him, and to go our own way. And so we have these questions like, okay, if I'm a new creation in Christ, then why is sin still such a problem? If the church is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Why is sin such a problem? Why am I still struggling with habitual sin? Why can I not put my sin to death? And probably more importantly, we're thinking, maybe we're making assumptions about, we should be thinking, how does God respond to me when I sin? These are important questions. They're very present and meaningful questions. And in order for me to answer those questions, we first got to ask a couple other more fundamental questions. So we've got three questions to cover this morning. First of all, what is sin? We have to identify it and define it. What is sin? Second question, how does God respond to sin? And the third question, how do we respond to sin? What is sin? How does God respond to sin? And how do we respond to sin? Now, I had Lauren read verse one. Um, we've got 20, what was that, 26, 27 verses in chapter seven. And I had her read verse one because verse one is put there importantly to help us read the rest of chapter seven. God knew what he was doing when he wrote Joshua seven and he gave us verse one to say, the people of Israel broke faith Because Achan sinned, and the anger of God burned against all of Israel. That colors the rest of chapter 7. So we read that through the lens of verse 1. Now, Achan was singled out as being the person that unapologetically sinned, refused repentance until he got found out. 
Achan was singled out, but the, um, the effect of sin fell on all of Israel. The consequences of sin fell on all of Israel. Now, let's define sin real quick. Sin is both something we do and sin is a way that we are. It is not who we are. It is a way that we are. Sin is both something we do and a way that we are. Sin is deep into our hearts. It's so deep that sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's easy for us to miss. Sometimes it's buried under a lot of pain, under a lot of uh, trying to control and cover up that pain. We need God's help. We need God's help to see not just how sinful our actions are, but how sinful our hearts are, how deep sin goes. And so we need God to lead us with scripture. We need God's word to pierce into our hearts. So when we talk about sin as an action, so we'll define active sin, the the surface sins, right? This is an act of disobedience or a rebellion against God. God has set out his way of living. These are his laws and his instructions. Our sin is breaking those laws and instructions. Active disobedience. But sin runs deeper than our actions, right? So there's a reason that we act sinful is because our desires are sinful. Our hearts are sinful. There's something about who we are, a way that we are, that is broken and distorted. Um, there's a, I'm going to use two tree metaphors. So for those of you from Texas, I've got one uh, about mesquite trees, right? Have you ever tried to mow over a mesquite tree? What happens? Like three and a half days later, it comes right back. You got to pick up that mesquite tree from the roots because the, the, the growth tissue of a mesquite tree goes deep below the surface. That's how sin is in our lives. Yes, I equated mesquite trees to sin. I think we're all okay with that, right? I wish I had one for mosquitoes. Maybe that's another sermon. But it's also trying to correct sin by simply correcting our actions is behavior modification. It's like putting fresh fruit on a dead tree. It doesn't work. The fruit rots. That's a Paul David Tripp analogy. It's something that has seared into my memory because I've, I have spent time as a Christian believing that that was the way that I followed Jesus. Just change the way that I act. That's dead fruit. The problem of sin goes deep under the surface. And so being sinful, having a sinful nature means that our desires are to reject God, to distrust and disbelieve God, and trust and believe in ourselves to be a better God. We can change our actions but we cannot change our nature. Do we see and maybe feel the problem of sin? We can change our actions. I can put fresh fruit on a dead tree. I can mow over a mesquite. 
I cannot change my nature. I need somebody of higher spiritual authority than me to change my nature. And when my nature's changed, then my actions change. Joshua 7.1 says, Israel broke faith when Achan took from the devoted things. These were um, all the, the plunder of Jericho in battle. And so when a, when a nation would come in and de- defeat another nation, um, they would have spoil, right? They would, have, they would be able to plunder that nation, take all of their valuable things. But God specifically instructed Israel to say, hey, you, you're, you're meant, you're designed to trust me. So do not plunder Jericho. Instead, take all the valuable things and devote them to the temple so that when I build my house, we can build them out of these things. But Achan took from the devoted things. And breaking faith is a very specific phrase. It means that they broke the covenant that God set up, the covenant that God set up in Exodus when he saved them from slavery and death. God killed the firstborn of Egypt and let his people Israel go free. And in the wilderness, immediately after they were set free, God set up a covenant to say, I will be God to you. You will be my people. It's a covenant, a one-way covenant of love. And so we see in Joshua 7, 1, Israel broke faith. This means that, that they broke the covenant that God had set up, this promise that he had set up between them to say, hey, I'm bringing you back into your design. I'm bringing you back to the way I created you all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That's where we're going with this covenant. And they broke that. They decided, no, thank you. Achan did not believe that God would give him good things. Achan did not believe that God would give him what his heart desired. So he chose to go in his own direction and take what he thought would fulfill his heart's desire. Achan's sin was not stealing. Achan's sin was rejecting God. Achan's sin was distrusting God to be good. So we'll recap the story of chapter 7 real quick. The story of Joshua 7 will show us the, the essence and the effect of sin more clearly. It shows us the end of sin It shows us how God responds to sin, how God calls us to respond to sin. And so it begins in verse two, Joshua sends out spies again. And it's the second time Joshua sent out spies. Uh, He sent spies out in chapter two before consulting God and their cover was blown. He sends out spies again. This time the spies come back with a report saying, hey, we got this. Like we don't even need to send our whole army. Just send a portion, send 1% of our army into AI and we'll take it, it's fine. It's gonna be an easy battle. And Joshua listens. He did not consult God, he did not pray, he did not refer to God's instructions. In Joshua chapter one, when God says, do not swerve to the left or to the right, Joshua in chapter seven swerved. We have this tendency to build up Bible characters, especially Joshua, as these heroes. Chapter seven should show us there are no heroes but one. Joshua is not a hero. 
He does some great things, but he is very broken, just like the rest of us. Joshua sends out his spies. They come back with a report saying, nah, this will be easy. And so they go into battle with only a few men, a couple thousand, and they lose. They get driven out of Ai. 36 men die. In a battle that's a part of a larger war where God promised zero casualties for Israel. 36 men die. This is a big deal. And so Joshua, the report gets back to Joshua. Um, Joshua and the elders respond very dramatically and emotionally. They cover themselves in dust. They bow before the Ark of the Covenant, wailing. What they're doing is performing a ritual of mourning and grief. They're mourning the loss of the battle, but God says, get up. You lost the battle because you turned from me. I'm not over there in Ai yet. I'm over here because you sinned. Joshua actually blames God for the loss of the battle, but God in his grace and his kindness doesn't even address that. He just says, Joshua, you've got a sin problem we've got to deal with. And so we see the effects of sin in, in uh, the first several verses of chapter seven. We see that um, Joshua's prideful, that his spies are prideful. We see that he makes um, bad decisions, his, impair, his judgment's impaired, blame shifting. Joshua, in his prayer, when he's um, dramatically mourning, he actually says, uh, he echoes the nation of Israel in the wilderness in Exodus when they say, oh, we should just stayed. We should have just stayed in Egypt. Joshua says, we should have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan. We shouldn't have even done this. So there's regret. And then ultimately death and loss. We're very familiar with the effects of sin whether it's a snowball, an avalanche, a dumpster fire, a slippery slope, whatever metaphor you want to roll in there. We're not going to go on and on about the effects of sin, but we will move on to the next question because we've already answered what is sin. The effects of sin are very clear in chapter 7. We know them. They're very clear in our lives. So the next question then is, how does God respond? How does God respond to uh, Israel's sin? And how does God respond to our sin? Now, short answer, for those that, that um, turn to God and trust him, he will always work to uncover sin. God will always uncover sin because he takes sin very seriously. Now, this is true for those who reject God as well as those who trust him. God will always work to uncover sin because he takes it very seriously. And because God is who he is, he has to take sin seriously. Let me explain. We'll go into Exodus 34. You guys are probably familiar with me using this verse. Exodus 34, verses six through seven. I'm gonna read that. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That, that three-part explanation of sin, iniquity, transgression, is sin. That's talking about our actions and our broken hearts. He forgives those, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Another way to translate that is who will by no means overlook the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is gracious and merciful and forgiving, but he also will not overlook the guilty. Because if there was no consequence for sin, then how would we define mercy and grace? If there was no outcome to rebellion against God, then would God actually be good and just and loving? And so we we look at Exodus 34 to understand that in order for God to be gracious and merciful, in order for him to forgive, there has to be something for him to forgive of. There has to be something for him to withhold from those whom he forgives. The punishment of sin that we see uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the punishment of sin being death. And so we ask that question, how does God respond to me in my sin? Well, like Joshua, when he prays um, and he goes before the presence of God and he's honest with him, he doesn't see the whole picture clearly, but he is honest with God. He blames him. He states his regret. And God says, hey, son, listen, Joshua, listen. There's sin in Israel and we have to deal with it. So God not overlooking our guilt is also his grace and his mercy that he desires to uncover our guilt so that we can turn and trust in him. And we need to understand this is God's mercy because not only is the punishment of sin death, but also like the natural consequence of sin is death. It's just a, a, like we we're talking about the snowball and the metaphors, that that's how, just how sin goes. It eventually leads to destruction. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's a very real and present danger. For anyone who rejects God, for anyone who does not accept and trust God, you trust in your sinful nature. Their end is like Jericho. Their end is like Achan, covered in stones. Scripture is very clear that those who reject God will die along with their sin because God has promised to kill sin. He's promised to wipe it out forever. But for those who reject him, they will die with their sin. For those who accept, we're promised life forever. We're promised that God will kill our sin, but we get to live. This is, this is God's grace and mercy. 
defined in Exodus 34. How do we end up on the receiving end of God's grace and mercy rather than ending up on the, the side of guilt, rather than remember, God remembering our iniquities to the third and fourth generations? How do we end up on that end? Because if Exodus 34 is true, God will not overlook our guilt. Well, we've already determined that we can't earn forgiveness because it's not about our actions, right? We can't change our nature. We can't change our hearts. We can't staple fresh fruit to a dead tree and call it good. We cannot earn forgiveness. And so we need something outside of ourselves, a higher authority, a higher power, someone above sin, outside of sin, to come in and forgive us. In Genesis 3, all of humanity rebels against God in the initial sin of Adam and Eve. Now, the act of their sin was taking from fruit from a tree that God had told them, do not take that fruit. But the sinful nature in their hearts, the, the desire, it says in Genesis 3 that they looked upon the fruit and saw that it was good. There was something in them that longed for what that tree could give them. And they longed for that outside of God. They said, this can give me something that God cannot give me. And so they rejected God, they rebelled against him, and they chose their own way. Immediately after, God takes them and he makes a promise to them. He says, one day I'm gonna deal with this sin. I'm gonna deal not just with your actions, I'm gonna deal with your hearts. I'm gonna deal with the brokenness that goes deep. I'm gonna send a savior. I'm gonna send a Messiah, a way out. God the Father knew that sin had not merely affected actions, but that our hearts needed to be made new. And the only way for that to happen, the only way, this didn't catch God by surprise, by the way. God knew and God had a plan. The only way to make it right was for God himself to become one of us and to reject the sinful nature and trust and follow God the Father purely, wholly, perfectly. And that in his innocent, perfect life, he would then also have to bear the penalty of sin for us. In his sinless life, he had to bear the penalty of sin, which is what? We've already defined that. Death. Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 10 is on another page of mine. Proverbs 10.16 and Romans 6.23. So it's Old Testament and New Testament. The end of sin is death. And so God himself put on human flesh, became sin and death for us, though he lived perfectly sinless. Jesus, the son of God, nailed to a cross, suffered, died, but on the third day, he was raised from the dead, defeating sin and death, a sinless sacrifice, raised again from the dead. When we trust in what Jesus did on the cross and the, the death 
that he endured, the suffering he endured on the cross, and the life that he rose to three days later. When we trust in that, we get the reward of his resurrection. We don't get the penalty of our sin. Did y'all drink enough coffee? That deserves an amen. Amen. Because we are forgiven, this this is our third question. How do we respond? So we define sin. We've learned how God responds to our sin by uncovering it. How do we respond? We confess. Because we are already forgiven in Christ, we're forgiven in the cross, we're free to confess our sins to God and to one another. The penalty's already been paid. There's nothing left for us other than forgiveness. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it's finished. That's what he was saying. There's no more. All that's left for you is mercy and grace and forgiveness. Now, confession requires a deep, deep look inward. Some of us, we're probably aware of a lot of our sin. We're probably aware of especially the things that we do, the actions, the sinful actions. But like I said, the the root of sin goes deep into our hearts, and sometimes it's really subtle. So how do we go that deep? How do we understand what's causing our sinful actions? How do we understand what's causing me to lash out at my kids when they disobey? How do we understand what causes me to lie to my friends because I want to look good in their eyes? What causes me to distrust and disobey God and and fight for control and power of my own life? What is deeper than the things that I do? That requires a deep look inward. And so we're going to look over Psalm 139, an incredible prayer of David that teaches us how to pray. We'll walk through Psalm 139. So we'll start, there's four, well, there's three three sections of Psalm 139, and we'll go over those. You can turn there, you don't have to. I won't be referring to any specific scriptures in Psalm 139. I wanted to give you um, the, the number, and then we're going to walk through the, the shape of it. I've got four things, so I've added um, one more thing to that that we get in uh, the New Testament. And so we begin, so um, Psalm 139 begins by confessing that God already knows everything. God, you've looked at me, you've seen me, you know my inner being. Before I was even born, you knew me. It's a reference to Jeremiah. Before I was born, you knew me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God already knows everything. He's already worked out your thoughts before you think them. So we can confess that there is no hiding from God, just like Achan was found out. Now, in Joshua 7, we see that they um, actually aren't told explicitly how it's... uh, assumed that they used these, I don't know, it was like a rock and a stick, uh, uh, Urim and Thummim, and it was a way to say, it's kind of like rolling dice. It was a way to say, God, you're in control, we need you to give us an answer, and they'd go by tribe, by tribe, by tribe, and they'd roll the dice, and God would say, no, 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 yes. 
And then they went, clan, clan, clan. No, 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 yes. God picked out Achan because God already knew. In Psalm 139, we see that God already knows our sin. The second step is that we allow ourselves to be honest with God. If you look at, I think it's um, verses 19 through 21, David is honest about his hatefulness towards his enemies. He literally prays for them to die. How more honest can we get? We're free to be honest with God. He can take it. And just like I mentioned before in Joshua 7, Joshua is very honest with God. He blames God for the death of these 36 men. He blames God for the defeat of Ai. And he says, I regret even trusting and following you. We should have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Have you ever thought a thought like that and said, no, 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 I can't pray that? Have you ever felt the desire in you to blame God for something or to regret something he's done in your life? God can take your honesty. He already knows what you're thinking and what you're feeling. He can take it because he still loves us and he still meets us in prayer. Look at how God responds to Joshua in chapter seven. After he blames him and says, I regret even following you, God says, Joshua, get up. So God did not abandon him like we so often think he does in our sin. He's right there. He responds to him, and in his grace, he uncovers his sin. And so when we pray that, we pray honestly to God because he already knows. So we remind ourselves that God knows everything. There's no hiding. We allow ourselves to be honest with God. And then point number three that we see in Psalm 139, we ask him to inspect our hearts. Some translations say, um, see if there's any grievous way in me. Another translation might say wicked way. What this is, is um, Psalm 1 talks about um, the man who stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers, walks in the counsel of the wicked. This is David praying, God, will you help me see how I could be like that person? that rejects you, that lives a life rejecting you. He, that's a bold prayer because God will uncover your sin. But then we listen. We wait. We listen. That's, that's where the prayer ends. He says, lead me in the ancient way. Lead me in the way everlasting. This is the way of trusting and following God that requires deep abiding prayer where we speak and we listen. We wait silently for God to show us and his spirit will show us our sin. And then number four, I'm getting this from 1 John 1. When God shows you your sin, or maybe it's something that you're already aware of, the spirit has convicted you of it, you confess it. Even though God knows you confess because your confession is a display of your security in Christ. Your confession is not only a confession of your sin, it's a confession of your trust in your forgiveness. Remember, sin 
is our rejection of God that is rooted deep in our hearts. That God does not overlook our sin and our guilt. If Exodus 34 is true, and it is true, God will not overlook our sin. He has not overlooked the guilty. He's offered us his son. He's not overlooked our sin. He's made a way out of it. We are free to confess. We're free to trust him and follow in his way. We're free to confess. And so we're gonna confess this morning with communion. We're gonna confess together. We're gonna do something a little bit different. Now, if you're a Christian, even if this is not your home church, we wanna invite you to take communion with us. So what we're gonna do um, here in a minute, I'm gonna let everyone go get your cups and then let's not take them yet. We're gonna take them as a body. Go back to your seat. We're gonna read together a prayer of confession, a corporate confession. And then I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians 11. I'll pray and then we'll sing our last song in worship. But if you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion with us. And scripture says that it's good for you to refrain from taking communion but instead, would you please consider the depth of sin? Would you look on Jesus as the only way to be made right and forgiven? You're free um, as you go back to your chairs. You're free to sit or stand, do whatever you want to do. Um, but let's together now uh, get, get the elements and come back to our seats. Let us read this prayer of confession together. There we go. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Now I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11. Listen, remember, and receive. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is done for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Holy Father, we are grateful to you because you have forgiven us. You've forgiven us in your son. We see in the person of Jesus that your justice and your mercy collide into the same frame. That you have chosen to be like us, to become one of us, to show us your love, your deep love that pierces through to our souls. God, we thank you and we worship you for this forgiveness. And God, we, we remember this morning what you've done and we ask that you would come quickly. Bring us home to you to live forever with you. God, lead us to worship by your Holy Spirit this morning. Amen.